0: Hey guys, and welcome back to Big Mad True Crime, where we get big mad over true crime. I'm your host, Heather, and this week I had intended on reading the book Letters from Christopher. It's a new book just released by this woman who's been writing him in prison. He allegedly agreed to let her write about what really happened, as long as she included his coming to God. So I thought long and hard about buying this book, because while a portion of the proceeds were being donated, that's only a portion. And Chris's garbage, and frankly, the whole book thing smelled bad. But in the business of being thorough, I ordered the book, paid for a three to four day shipping, and hoped to get it by Wednesday. Finish it by Thursday and get a review and some feedback to you by today, but that did not happen. They shared on Facebook that they sold over 4,000 books, but somehow the only people who had gotten theirs had ordered them from Amazon, which was apparently a mistake. I got an email that my book was in the fulfillment process, and people were getting emails about their books shipping mid-October. The Facebook page letters to Christopher, which had been up for a while, had a really half-assed apology, and they said that they were deleting the Facebook page. Obviously, I called and canceled my order because not only did this smell bad, it was bullshit and fuck that. Enough of the book has been made public for me to discuss how some of it is probably true and the rest is straight up crap, as to be expected by this trash compactor of a human being. I always tell you that small talk sucks, so we'll call what just happened big talk and dive into the heinous details of Chris's third confession. Here we go. In Chris's first confession, he said Shanann strangled Bella, strangled Cece, and then Chris strangled her. He then picked her up, put her back in their bed, wrapped her in a sheet, and then put all of their bodies in his truck, buried Shanann in an oil field, and dropped his two daughters in side-by-side oil tanks. In his second confession, he says that him and Shanann had sex, went to sleep, woke up, argued about a separation and a suspected affair. Chris strangled her until blood filled her eyes and her bodily fluids expelled. Bella walked in, asking what was wrong with mommy. Chris wrapped Shanann up in a sheet, dragged her down the stairs in front of their four-year-old daughter, put her in the floorboard of the back of his work truck, then sat Bella and Cece in the back seat, drove to the oil field and dumped Shanann's body on the ground, suffocated and strangled Cece, dumped her in an oil tank, then suffocated and strangled Bella as she fought back, yelling, Daddy, no! And when she was dead, dumped her body in the oil tank beside CeCe's. After that, he dug an 18-inch hole and then rolled Shanann into it and covered her with dirt. Those are the cliff notes. I did not expect you to remember everything off of the top of your head. Now that you've been refreshed, this is what Chris is now saying in letters and meetings that he shared with Sherilyn Cadle, author of the elusive Letters to Christopher. The author did a lot of free press about this book, in which a lot of the details were released to the public. The Daily Mail even got copies of some of the letters sent to Sherilyn Cadle, so we're going to address that information and what we believe and what we believe to be crap. First things first, Chris admits to having been plotting the murders for some time, which we already knew. He had volunteered the Friday before the murders to show up to that oil field first thing in the morning alone, and on the way to that oil field, he made several calls to make sure that no one was going to interrupt him in the middle of disposing of his murdered family. Chris says that on the night of August 12th, as he was tucking his daughters in and turning on their sound machines, he knew that that was the last time he was going to be putting them to bed. He skips any detail of whether or not he had sex with Shanann when she got home or whether or not she was on her phone and skips straight to the next morning when he woke up for work. Chris says now that he went directly into Bella's room, placed a pillow over her head and smothered her until she stopped moving. When he was done, he methodically walked into Cece's room, reportedly a daddy's girl, and did the same thing to her, placing her pillow over her head and smothering her until she stopped moving. He said this is why the girl's cause of death was smothering. But hold that thought. Chris then reports that he walked back into his room and woke Shanann up, who had no idea that her husband had just murdered their two children. Their argument began. The only details about the argument that he gives is that he told Shanann that he didn't love her and that he wanted a separation. Chris recalls Shanann's face being covered in black mascara from her crying. I pointed out in earlier episodes that he repeated this detail over and over in statements to police, so I genuinely felt like this was true and an image that stuck with him, and it was. He says that after the argument, he waited for her to get drowsy, then strangled her. He recalls thinking about killing her for weeks, knowing that if he could just squeeze her jugular long enough, he'd cut off the blood flow to her brain and she'd lose consciousness. Chris admits that he knew he could remove his hands at any time and Shanann and his unborn son would survive, but he couldn't because he knew Shanann would keep him from Kessinger forever. He said Shanann could not fight back. He recounts watching her eyes slowly fill with blood as she stared at Chris. And when she lost control of her bowels, Chris said that's when he knew the job was done. But let's take a look at Shanann's autopsy. It showed all of the bruising on Shanann's neck to be on the right side only. Not many people get strangled with two hands and only have injuries to one side of their neck. Did I mention that her hyoid bone was not broken? While it's possible to be strangled and not break your hyoid bone, it's pretty hard. So from everything I'm looking at, Shanann was probably sleeping on her left side when Chris came up behind her and strangled her from there, using pressure from the right side of her neck to push the left side of her neck into her pillow slash mattress, cutting off any chance of oxygen getting to her brain. Remember how Chris had previously mentioned that Shanann was laying face down? I wondered why he would put the effort into rolling her dead body onto her stomach, but if she was laying on her side, asleep or drowsy like he said this time, any movement she made in reaction to this surprise attack probably only put her closer to the position of laying face down. And if this is the case, even less of his accounts of what happened that night, at least to Shanann, are true. But Chris's murderous rampage was not over like he thought it was because it turns out he had not killed Bella and Cece. He had smothered them until they were unconscious, but they were not dead. While he was wrapping up Shanann's dead body into their bedsheet, Bella and Cece regained consciousness and walked into their parents' bedroom. Chris said that both of Bella's eyes were bruised and both girls looked like they had been through trauma. No shit, their dad had just tried to kill them. But Bella's autopsy noted no bruising to her eyes. So again, why lie? It's as if some sick part of him enjoys the gruesome details of what he did, sometimes changing them to sound worse than they really were and oftentimes leaving out details more gruesome than he's letting on because he's too ashamed to admit them, as he should be. Chris finished wrapping up their mother and dragged her down the stairs in front of them. The two girls walked around the house, confused and terrified, little Cece looking to her older sister Bella for some kind of reassurance, but Bella started to cry, and when she did, so did Cece. Chris wasn't relieved that he'd been given a second chance at life with his daughters. Instead, he said he was overwhelmingly angry that they were still alive. Let's pause for a second while Chris makes his lunch. Sandwich? Check. Chips? Check. Water bottle? Check. Maybe some fruit? Sounds good. Okay, we don't know when, but at some point between smothering his two daughters and strangling his pregnant wife to death, Chris took the time to make himself a lunch that he could take with him to work and munch on during his break. I guess he didn't want to waste the money eating out, but alas, murder makes him hungry. Back to the story, Chris, and I quote, bundles Shanann in the back of the truck, still insisting that he has garbage bags covering her head and feet. Now knowing he's pissed that Bella and Cece are alive and that they already saw their dead mother get wrapped up in a sheet, I don't think he put the garbage bags on Shanann for their benefit like he said. I think he did it in an effort to conceal the human in the back of his truck. Anything can be rolled up in a sheet, but a head, hair, and feet, that's all going to be distinctively human. And if he got pulled over or someone looked into his truck for some reason, he would have needed to have disguised Shanann's body in the floorboard. But that's if he even put her in the floorboard. His new description of bundling Shanann in the back of the truck makes me wonder if he actually threw her in the floorboard of his truck at all. Remember, you see Chris bending down to pick up his girls and put them in the back seat of his pickup on his neighbor's surveillance footage. You never see him struggle with a large object. Not to mention, the sun was coming up as he was packing this murder truck. I don't think he'd risk anyone seeing him carry a people-sized package wrapped in a sheet with garbage bags on either end as he finagled it into the back floorboard of his truck, but that's just a theory. Chris says it took him an hour to drive to the oil site, and when he got there, he literally says he dumped his wife's body onto the ground. He used the word dumped as if she was garbage, as if she had no value to him whatsoever. He was simply moving something out of his truck that had no value to him anymore. Then he says, the same as before, that he left her body on the ground and went back to the truck to smother Cece with her own blanket as Bella watched, shoved her in the oil tank, and then did the same thing to Bella, whose last words were, "'Daddy, no!' But Bella fought back, and she fought back hard." She thrashed in his arms, trying to escape her father. Her frenulum, the skin between your gums and your lips, was completely torn, leaving a huge hole in her mouth. She also aggressively bit her tongue in the process. There would have been a significant amount of blood coming from her mouth and subsequently on that blanket. And I'm guessing that is why he disposed of it in that construction dumpster, along with the entire outfit he was wearing that day. It makes my skin crawl, and it makes me a level of big mad that I cannot describe in words when I hear Chris say, Little quiet Bella had a will to live. What a piece of fucking shit. The fact that he was able to escape the death penalty infuriates me. He has said time and time again that he wasn't trying to separate the girls from their mom when he put them in the tanks. Oh no, he was just afraid that the girls would wake back up again, so he wanted to make sure that their tiny little lungs were filled with crude oil so that wouldn't be an issue. He knew Shanann was dead. He couldn't be so sure about the girls. Chris recounts that he couldn't believe how easy it was to put the girls in the oil tanks, but frankly, I think he's saying that to try and dispute the facts. Cece's autopsy showed no significant trauma. She was smaller than Bella, and he didn't have to try as hard to get her into the tank. But Bella's autopsy was another story. Bella's autopsy showed a 1.5 centimeter cut to her frenulum and upper gum line, along with bruising. That's more than half an inch long in the mouth of a four-year-old on her left buttock she had a 13 centimeter by 3 centimeter abrasion that's five inches long and one inch wide this is from chris trying to squeeze her through a hole smaller than the width of her little body she had a 3.5 inch by 1.5 inch yellowish brownish bruise on her left torso and a one inch by half inch yellowish brown bruise on her left shoulder I spoke to a forensic investigator who said that yellow or brown bruising generally indicates that it's old, so this may have been unrelated, but it's one hell of a coincidence. After Chris had disposed of his three and four-year-old little girls, he went back to where he had dumped Shanann's body and dug a shallow hole, which he says now he thought was deeper. What a weird comment to make, like, oh shit, I could have sworn I buried her deeper than that. There are so many things wrong with this asshole. Chris never mentions removing the bags. He just said he tugged on the sheet she was wrapped in and she rolled out and into the hole. She landed in the fetal position with her knees under her chest with her arms stretched out above her head. He says he was so angry with her that he didn't care how she landed. He was angry at Shanann for simply existing. He notes that he thinks that she had given birth. She was buried without pants on and a blue thong. He knows she had given birth. Baby Nico's 15-week little body resting in his amniotic sac was now protruding from Shanann's vaginal area, and Chris just covered them up with dirt like they meant nothing to him. I looked up the size of a 15-week fetus and what it would look like in an amniotic sac. I don't recommend this, but at an average of 4 inches long and in a clear sac of clear amniotic fluid... I can almost guarantee that if he saw the amniotic sac protruding from his wife, he was able to see his tiny son inside, but not even that was enough to shake him. He continued on with his day as if nothing happened. He worked. He called the girls' daycare to tell them they wouldn't be coming in anymore, he made arrangements with his realtor, stopped by a model home, he reportedly opened a new bank account, he took photos of flowers for Kessinger and texted her as if it was any other day. This man is a monster. Now that we've covered this new half-assed account of what Chris says happened, let's rewind and talk about Chris's mention of Shanann getting drowsy and saying that she couldn't fight back. Chris admits to trying to cause Shanann to miscarry by slipping oxycodone in her drink on two different occasions. Once during the summer while they were in North Carolina staying with family, which would make sense. Remember, she got sick as soon as he got there and he refused to tend to her, which her brother specifically remembers as being odd. And she texted Chris that she was spotting. Chris's timing was suspect. This is when he told Shanann that he didn't want the baby, right before their gender ultrasound. So I'm wondering if he planned this timing so that they'd go to this ultrasound only to find out that the baby had passed and that this problem wouldn't be a problem anymore. Chris says he thought it would be easier with Kessinger if Shanann wasn't pregnant, But why, unless Kessinger knew Shanann was pregnant like we all know she did, and it bothered her and was causing issues in her and Chris's relationship? Chris refuses to say where he got the oxycodone from, saying it's something he'll take to his grave. Out of all the things in this world that this shitbag has ever done, this is the detail he says he'll be taking to his grave. Who is the only person Chris has protected when it comes to this case? Who is the one person Chris can't bring himself to implicate or even speak poorly of? I'll let you come to that conclusion on your own. Chris claims to have drugged Shanann a second time the night before he murdered her, but her toxicology report from her autopsy didn't indicate any sign of her having ingested oxycodone. So we know this isn't true, but why lie about it? Isn't that the theme of this case? We really should have named this podcast, Why Lie About It? Anyways, he later recanted that statement, but that means nothing to me other than the fact that we can rest assured that Chris is still a liar. If you recall, though, he did say that Shanann couldn't fight back and that she was drowsy. Who gets drowsy after your husband tells you he doesn't love you and that he's leaving you? No one, especially not feisty Shanann, you get lit. The last thing you're going to do is take a fucking nap. While they didn't find any oxy in Shanann's system, you know what they did find? A blood alcohol level of 0. 0.128. 15 weeks pregnant, type A Shanann was drunk? I find that hard to believe. Police went back and checked the home for bottles of alcohol, which they found none of, and interviewed her friend Nicole, who had been with her the entire time the night before, going over what she had eaten the night before, and Nicole noted that Shanann had not ingested any alcohol. In fact, every one of her friends who was asked about Shanann's drinking habits said that they'd never seen her drunk. Most said they'd never even seen her have a drink. I did some research and it looks like the decomposition process can sometimes create an increase in BAC levels due to fermentation. A study done by Gilliland MG showed that 39 out of 130 studied autopsies tested negative for alcohol. They were not able to determine the source of the rest of the remaining alcohol concentrations. If I'm interpreting this study correctly, and bear with me, it is well above my education level, let's be honest. The highest alcohol level was 0.07 in cases where all the other tested fluids were negative. The average was 0.06 but went as high as 0.16 in cases where other fluids also tested positive. The blood tested for Shanann's BAC was taken from her spleen. I didn't see where any other samples were taken or tested for her BAC, so frankly, we may never know whether alcohol was involved or if her BAC was simply elevated due to fermentation during the decomposition process. Judging by Shanann's height and weight, she would have had to have consumed around four shots of alcohol between 2 a.m. and 4.30-ish a.m. to have reached that BAC level by the time she was killed. We know that she wouldn't have drank on her own regard because there was no pattern of it, and frankly it wasn't in her character, and she was, of course, 15 weeks pregnant. But how does someone force another person to drink? Is it even possible? Again, this is something that we will never know the truth behind because at this point it can't be proven, but it's something to take into account when considering his comments about being unable to defend herself and being drowsy after a life-altering argument. Chris said he did all of this so he could live his life out with Kessinger. He could start over and start a new family with the new love of his life. The love of his life who has since been reported to be in the witness protection program. Now, the original source of this was Radar R-Line, so I will give it and I will take it. But it says that it came from a source close to the investigation who says she's living hundreds of miles away with a brand new name. So maybe she's not in witness protection, she just created a new life for herself. Either way, this girl not only got off without a single charge, she is living a brand new life. The woman who started Googling Shanann's name 11 months before Chris killed her and nine months before she claims to have started dating Chris, The woman who couldn't remember the missing text she had deleted in the details of the conversation she had with Chris the day Shanann, Bella, and Celeste went missing, but remembered the expiration dates on a couple boxes of condoms Chris brought to her house months before. The woman who would test Chris to see if he was still sleeping with Shanann, The woman who went to his house, went into his bedroom, saw Shanann's side of the bed, her clothes in the closet, and items around the house, but insists she thought Chris was going through a divorce that was almost finalized. The woman who claims not to have known Shanann was pregnant, but methodically checked hers and Chris's Facebook accounts to see what act they were currently sharing with the world, and she knew that that act was happily married, regardless of the turmoil actually going on behind the scenes. Chris had said he knew he could never be with Kessinger if Shanann was around. Kessinger didn't want to play second fiddle in life to any of Chris's previous firsts. She didn't want to be his second wife. She didn't want to give him his second son. So divorce wasn't an option for Chris. He had to find a restart button, and for him, the only answer was murder. Next week, we're going to wrap up this case with some theories I see floating around, and feel free to send me yours. I would love to read them and might even mention them in our next episode. Send them to me on my Instagram at the Heather Ashley. After we go over these theories, I'm going to tell you what I think happened and go over the blanks we just can't fill in in this case, at least not until Chris talks again, which we know he will. As always, if you love this podcast, drop us a rating or even a review. We love reading them. And just like last week, we will be giving you a bonus episode of a brand new case on Thursday, so be sure to subscribe so you get notifications when new episodes are released. I'll be giving you teasers to our Thursday cases on my Instagram, at Ashley. so be sure to tune in there to get your guesses in. Until next week, we out.